I'm Tim Fleming, and this is Better Outcomes, a podcast about stories and experiences from the underrepresented minority side of medicine and healthcare, featuring both patients and providers with the goal of making medicine more equitable for more people. In the May 9th, 2017 issue of the Journal of the American Medical Association, Dr. Callie Cyrus of the Yale School of Medicine Psychiatry Department writes, Since the beginning of my medical education, I have supplied diversity to institutions by not only being present in my medical community as an other, but also enthusiastically educating those around me through culturally competent curriculum design, starting an LGBTQ organization, or giving lectures on implicit bias. While I am proud of the diversity I could offer my medical school and residency program, it is emotionally exhausting to put your difference on display. This is in a piece called Medical Education and the Minority Tax, and you should absolutely read it. Pause me and do it right now. It's super quick. It describes the sometimes exhausting feeling she experiences being the only racial minority in a room of white colleagues while consistently bringing up the impact of things like race, gender, sexual orientation, and gender identity in clinical cases. The impact of race and other social issues in clinical cases has been discussed a lot lately, and for good reason. Of course, there's the general idea that, as human beings, we're much more comfortable talking about personal issues with people that we have something in common with. But there are other reasons, too, medical ones that actually affect how minority patients are cared for. In early 2016, a study was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences that showed that more than half of the medical students at University of Virginia believed that black and African-American people can tolerate pain better than white people. These beliefs have real-life implications. For example, the undertreatment of pain in a group of people based solely on the color of their skin. Clearly, Dr. Cyrus's educational work with colleagues and students is crucial. Have you read her JAMA piece yet? It's great, right? Dr. Cyrus also published a piece called The Psychiatrist with a Psychiatrist for the online blog KevinMD.com, and it is refreshingly honest. I knew once I read this that she has some golden nugget of wisdom that not only allows her to educate her students and colleagues on how minority status affects patient well-being, but also helps her to become a better doctor. You'll hear her speak often in this interview of self-disclosure and how it allows her to be at the top of her game, decide when to press colleagues and students on biased beliefs, and how it also allows her to embrace other people, even if they don't relate to one another, and learn from unlikely partnerships. As a quick note, there was some construction going on outside my window during this interview, So if you're walking to work listening to this, know a garbage truck is not backing up behind you. Here's Dr. Cyrus. Hi, Dr. Cyrus. Hi, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing okay. Sorry, just trying to close all of my emails so they don't beep. Oh, no, that's that's perfectly fine. I have a crew of construction workers jackhammering outside of my my window. Uh Okay. Okay. <laughs> so Certainly. your emails will pale in comparison, I promise. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, so I'm on video. You are not on video. Yes. Would you let be- me do that. So tell me a little bit about, you know, and, and I wrote this in my questions too, and I'm not sure if it's, you know, too gray area of a question and you can take it in wherever direction you'd like, but tell me a little bit about going through kind of the medical education system and then, you know, practicing clinically and, how you you mentioned sort of supplying diversity 
how you you think you're viewed as a lens, how you view your own identity through you know whatever lens you have. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that. I mean, how do I say this? I think one of the things that I've I've pretty much known about myself for a long time is that I you know. I'm not going to call it this like the, the overshare tendency, but it's I, I don't have a problem sort of um, self-disclosing. That's how right. I say it. Um, and I, I find that it generally helps uh, bridge the gap, I think, between friendships and also sometimes between colleagues. It's, it's purposeful self-disclosure is what I'll say. And I think that that is one of the primary ways that I've gotten to know, you know, just a really diverse group of people. And so getting, when I first, I, I, I started medical school uh, a few years after college. I took a I got my, my MPH at Emory for a couple of years, and then I actually deferred my first year, and I moved to Brazil for about 10 months. Um, and then I started medical school. And so I think, one, not being right out of college, like a lot of my colleagues, two, um, which I guess is the same as being older, and then three, not being from Illinois or Chicago and being at um, University of Illinois at Chicago UIC, which primarily is a state school, so most of the people were from Chicago. I found that I just had a lot of different, a lot more different types of experiences than some of my than some of my classmates. And what I found actually happening, I think, is that as a student, I just felt like people didn't had never. I'll, I'll say colleagues, I'll say professors, um, you know, attend like attendings that I was working with, but they hadn't. I'm not gonna say they were ignorant or naive. But it, there was a bit, a bit rough around the edges in terms of discussing, I think, I, uh, concepts of diversity, even when you asked about a patient. And then with my classmates, you know, I just didn't feel like it, every, you know, conversations about, oh, tell me about your, who are you dating? Or, you know, oh, you're, are you queer? Oh, what is that? You know, it just, it was always really clunky. Like people didn't really know how to have the conversations. Um, and just being someone who prefers to just be quite blunt, honestly, and say, well, are you familiar with this? Like, can I help talk to you about this? Um, I felt like it, it just became a, it needed to be on a larger scale. Uh, and so that, you know, we'd had, I think some form of an LGBTQI kind of organization, but I essentially sort of formalized it my first year in medical school. Um, and I was never, you know, the person who was the, the, you know, the rainbow flag kind of holder or bearer, any of that stuff, but it just, it, it, we needed it. <laughs> like we really needed it. And I think as I progressed through med school, I could see how, how much more we needed and how much wasn't being done. And this was also right about the time that I think this article came out. Was it also in JAMA from the Stanford folks about the lack of curriculum, LGBTQ curriculum? I think it was like 22%, only 22% have some sort of LGBTQ related curriculum in their medical school um, education. Um, and I mean, it was right on. And so it was initially the, I think it was my sexuality that I think propelled me into, I think, supplying that diversity. Um, and maybe putting that on display, like informally, formally by creating a group for the informal education of my peers and my colleagues and my medical community. Um, but I think informally, as not just me, I'm sure you and anyone else who, rep who has some sort of other, um, you know, I think we have our own choice how much we disclose and how much we want to correct or teach people who may not know. And that's something I think I've, I've generally been more tolerant of doing. And so I think supply is formally and informally in what those ways are. So that was at least in medical school. Does that make sense? That makes that makes a lot of sense. And yeah. 
going off of your question or your statement about you know as as a person who has some sort of otherness to them you know you have the choice of how much education and how much correction you want to do of of those around you and and maybe they're not even you know uh, po- you know they don't have any bad intentions but you right. have you found yourself um i guess in a clinical sense doing some of that uh social education you know through through medicine and and the reason i ask this i'll i'll, I'll actually get even more pointed with the question is um, you talk about being in a room with seven white faces staring back at you, and you're mm-hmm. the only one who brings up the impact of race in a clinical case. Mm-hmm. There's a dual education that happens there, I'm sure. Right. Do you feel that you know you can maybe um, back off some of the social – not back off, but you don't have to necessarily bear the flag every single day because you're consistently bringing it up in a clinical sense as well? Like is it different bringing it up in a clinical sense than it is uh, maybe interpersonally or in a social sort of way? Yeah, and and I think I was asking also just about when you do bring it up in a clinical sense. Yeah. You know, do you feel as though, you know, the next time your your colleague, I, I guess, do you weigh your options between am I going to bring this up in a clinical sense or am I going to you know talk to them the next time that they say something somewhat. Uh, out of line or is it every t- single time it's brought up in a clinical case you're the person and and it's you know you feel the responsibility to do that yeah yeah and so that's i mean that's a really difficult question i think like everyone you sort of have to pick and choose your battles and i, I think it's unfortunate that we i have to label this maybe a battle mm-hmm. but i think it is because it's a it's not a comfortable conversation generally to either i think sometimes even just pose the question but to even ask someone about an action or a statement that that even refer to race or sexuality, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so for me, I can honestly say that every time every time I think this concept comes up or this issue, I do feel the pressure to say something. And I, I don't think that that is 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 novel only to me. Um, and so generally, my decision tree is, do I want to say something now or do I want to say something later? Um, is this going to help me? Is this going to help other people? Or, you know, am I in the mood? And so I think from there, it does depend on if it's clinically, like if I am in the clinic or if I'm in the inpatient hospital, um, versus am I in an an academic setting? Um, in the clinic, it's usually with med students, I think I'll say, I'll, I'll, I'll usually say something. Um, more than likely, I'll say something just because I think I'm serving an educational role there. And if it's with an attending, um, that is trickier, obviously. It's, sure. uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And most of the time, I I err on, I have kind of like a three strikes rule or system where I gather data first and then, you know, try to assess how much of it is a situation versus like this person's how much they know or don't know kind of thing. But I generally will bring it up when I feel like it has not been given the attention that it has been in some way. Um, if it's if it's especially a repeated sort of um, environment that I have to keep going into, I will always at some point say, if you're not going to do it today, you need to find a way to bring it up. Um, and those typically, those to me are actually a lot easier than academically. For me, the academic... Um, challenges are are I feel a bit more interpersonally just like difficult in general and so the classroom thing is something that has happened 
always. It's, it's I mean, even in, med in medical school, but even in residency is what I found to be more difficult because my, so my residency is particularly, my class is particularly large. At Yale, you know, we have usually around 18. And then after the third year of residency, people leave and fast track. And so now there's about 12 of us. And I'm the only black person in my residency class, which is unusual for um, our classes here at Yale. Most of them are, are more diverse. And I'm constantly the only person who is bringing it up. Um, and that's with my co-residents. And that's also in another in other clinical settings, if I happen to be working with psychologists, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and there I find that people you know, roll their eyes because they already know that, or here she goes bringing this up, which also might just be my projection. Or two, you know, it, it sparks some kind of argument. Or three, we just pass over it because it's like, oh yeah, of course that makes a difference. Um, but in meetings, and, and then as, I think as chief resident, at least when I was, and then as a senior resident in general, and just by virtue of what I was involved in, I had a seat at many tables mm -hmm. and I brought it up as often as I could. I think some of that just has to do with maybe the time, like after November 8th, I think I'm feeling a bit more, you know, like I gotta say stuff because if we don't say it, who knows what's gonna happen. Right. Um, yeah, than I used to be, but there is a difference, and it's it's very. I'll tell you, it's it's. I mean, it's taxing. <laughs> sure. What ends up happening, and I think this happens with me also, is that you start to sort of take like once, even if you're the one who either has to listen to it all the time or bring it up, is that it starts to create this antagonism that's kind of like you versus them or them versus me, and I think what it actually is, it's not it's not just that we all should start. I call it checking people when I give my presentations. I'm like, you should check yourself. Um, but I also think that it's creating an environment where it's okay to actually check people. And it's not like you call it, like, you just did this, you're so dumb. It's just like, hey, like, what do you mean by that? Can we talk about it without it being such a scary thing? Um, and I, I tie this back to passing because I know that myself, I pass in a lot of contexts as well and i know just like you said it's like i also have my blind spots um and i want people to you know pull me aside also but you know there are people who are scared to talk to me or scared to do this um and you know that might just have to do with whatever our personal dynamic is but i also think a lot of it's just a product of medicine in general and maybe how how stiff or rigid um some of these conversations can be that are more interpersonal and people have to express vulnerability but I think, you know, one of the things I think when I when I go back in August that I'm trying to work with the chairman on is maybe this new campaign that is maybe not like the New York subway system, like if you see something, say something, but like it's okay to say something. Like if you are you feel hurt or you feel like you want to have a conversation with someone, we need to decrease maybe this like this tension or this reluctancy to feel like you can have one of these conversations. And that means that the person on the other side needs to realize you're not a monster. You're not necessarily like attacking your personal character. Maybe you just want to have a conversation because I mean, we have to, we can't have like people who are whatever call themselves Democrats yelling at all the Republicans all the time. You know, we have to say it's, it's beyond that. Like, let's talk about how you feel and how I feel without labeling each other as bad or good. That's a, I, I, I hope that gets extended to every industry, you know, not just not just medicine, because I, I hope it actually gets extended directly to my nuclear family. That would be wonderful. <laughs> um, that would be fantastic. Uh, you know, you, you just brought up so many things. I, I was like jotting down notes as you wrote or as you spoke. Um, and one of the things that you mentioned was was vulnerability. And even just in the first initial 
couple of moments where we started this conversation, you said, I, I tend to be an oversharer, or, or it's not a necessarily oversharing, but you haven't ever uh, had an issue with self-disclosing. Mm-hmm. Um, talk to me about that vulnerability in your writing and also kind of how that, do you think that that type of vulnerability, and I'm not saying, you know, big waterworks tears all the time, but just the right, openness right. to explain where your feelings are and where your head is at, does that, do you think, make you a, a better practitioner? Do you think that that, you know, ultimately creates a, a better response from your patients who look like you and your patients who maybe don't identify with anything that you identify with? Yeah, yeah, that's a really good question. I think that, one, I think it works for me. So I'll say it makes me a better practitioner because even even in the times that I don't self-disclose verbally, perhaps like to my patients, I am thinking I'm to myself, this is awkward, or this doesn't feel right, or oh, I really don't want to be in the room with this person. And I think even that is, it's like self-disclosure to the self, is a, is a recognition that something's right and I need to change it or I need to, to you know, acknowledge it. Like, oh, something's not right here. Are you feeling okay? Um, and I think that that, which I also would attribute to my just like high anxiety in general, is that I'm con- like just constantly overanalyzing how I feel. Do I feel comfortable in the place? Why don't I feel comfortable in trying to figure that out? Um, and I mean, I think it's 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 honestly quite annoying. But I also think that I've used I've tried to learn how to use it in a productive way. And I think for me, it actually really helps. I think the challenge is that people, everyone is so different. And that I think if the way that that self-disclosure works for me makes me better. But I can't say that's what makes every practitioner better. But I think at least I can say with certainty that self-disclosure to the self will make you a better practitioner. Because I think that some of it is that we're either too, we don't want to accept what we're thinking. We don't even know how to do that. Like we haven't been, it's just not something that we do. Um, Probably we shut it off because we don't have time and we're making so many decisions as a, as a physician that you just want to like make the right decision for the patients. And you don't think that you are, um, you know, thinking about how you feel or even acknowledging it is, is useful to a situation. Um, I mean, there, there's so many reasons not to do it, but I do think that once you do learn how to recognize what you're feeling or thinking and appropriately, uh, I'll say strategically share it. I think it really helps. And I even, I only will say this now because I was taking a class through the School of Management this past semester with, so with business school students, MBA students, and it was, it was essentially these groups they used to have in the 90s or the 80s called T groups where you meet every week for three hours and you just talk and it's unstructured. And so, you know, people end up, the goal is for you to learn how you interact in the group, for people to give you feedback and for you how to learn, you to learn to get feedback. And, you know, so there are people who are yelling at each other, like, you do like I was yelled at I think for four sessions in a row. Um, like we don't trust you. Why are you asking what we're do? Why we're doing this, et cetera, et cetera. But as the class progressed on, I think one of the concepts we talked about a lot was self-disclosure, and that we tended to trust the people more who self-disclosed more about themselves. Um, rather than the people who were quiet, who never said anything, because then we had more data about what they were thinking. And so I think that it's just something that I feel more comfortable doing, honestly, because the more anxious I am, the more info I want to put out there so that I can get that off my chest. So like, you know what, I'm feeling anxious right now. I'm just going to let you know that so that I can proceed with whatever we're doing. 
um, of course, appropriately when it's when it's professional, when it's not. And so I do see that your number 12 was about the Kevin MD piece, mm -hmm. which was something that I wasn't quite sure I was going to um, you know, publish, but I ended up doing it for a writer's workshop and reading it um, during, you know, one of the internal medicine grand rounds. And so, um, you know, you know, it was, it was read publicly is what I'll say. And I, you know, I'm, I'm honestly, I'm not that embarrassed about it because at least I know I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure that at least in the, in the world I'm operating, uh, professionally, I hope. Um, but I also don't, I just, I don't understand sometimes why things are a big deal. And I one think that's because maybe I tend to be pretty open to most people's experiences, just being a psychiatrist and also my friends who are crazy people, I suppose. Um, but I also grew up in a household with my mother, I'll credit to being sort of like extremely intrusive. So I ne I didn't really develop with a good sense of what you were supposed to ask and what you weren't supposed to ask people and what you were supposed to tell them weren't you, what you weren't supposed to tell people. Um, and so, I've, you know, of course I've groomed that a bit better these days, but I think there are a lot of times I just, I, I didn't know what was gauche not to say, and I'm quite blunt most of the time. And I think that is, again, a product of maybe my upbringing, how I was raised. And I've had to learn, you know, obviously to fine tune that. But I think that's me. And so, I mean, I don't know if there's a way that maybe you 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 can think about that in your own sort of terms and how comfortable you are with personally, you know, discussing your own your own life and, and how to use it. But I do think it helps to establish trust with other people when you say it. But I think that you need to, people need to self-disclose with themselves. They need to understand where they're coming from. That's that sounds you're 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 i'm like you're bringing up one answer and i'm writing down like 12 other questions which i will not i promise you i will not ask all of them um i'm i'm struck again with this idea of self-disclosure and also you you know you kind of said going through these questions that you're asking yourself why do i feel uncomfortable where am i right now is this me projecting is this etc x y or z I mm -hmm. think we're in a really, really interesting time right now where a couple of things are kind of converging. The first is mental health awareness. And, mm. you know, on the one hand, we have so we have so many strides to still make. And right. on the other, we're starting to take those baby steps. And you're right. starting to see the conversation get a little deeper as well. I, yeah. I remember, you know, remember is, is a strange word because it happens so frequently. But whenever there's a horrible you know, um, attack with a, with a gun, uh, in the U S the kind of the, one of the quick things is we have to keep weapons out of mentally, uh, unhealthy people's hands. Mm -hmm. And what I'm starting to hear now, and, and it's really fascinating to me and, and I'm really happy to hear it is that we need to stop only talking about mental health when these horrific violent attacks occur. Right. And the other thing that's converging, I think, is this, and and it's always happened since you know the probably the dawn of time. But the thing that I can think of the most um, that relates to it is just the Vietnam, the anti-Vietnam War effort was is just student activism. Mm -hmm. And I've done a, obviously I've done some Google searching, and I I came across a, a 2015 conference where you spoke about the student activists kind of taking care of mm -hmm. themselves. Mm -hmm. um, and I think now, especially in medical school where, you know, healthcare is such a human right at this point, uh, that student activism is, is, is no longer, um, 
it's no longer just for the hippie majors. You know, it, we're now seeing, like you mentioned, we're now seeing the white coats for Black Lives Movement. We're starting mm-hmm. to see, uh, you know, these these med students and these young doctors and, and new residents uh, mm-hmm. stand up for universal health care or at least something that, that grants health care to the most amount of people possible. Right. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, from your perspective specifically, because I know that there are, because most of my classmates are a bunch of white guys. From your perspective, mm-hmm. you know, for for black women, for queer people, for people of color who are student activists, are hoping to, you know, become a doctor or a nurse or uh, something within, you know, medicine, how do they toe the line between, like you said, staying professional, but on the other hand, kind of pushing the world in the, in the direction that they want to see? Yeah, yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I think one, you have to take care of yourself. Um, I think you, I mean, you ultimately, you have to, no matter what, especially if you're, that's a a very, very valuable lesson to learn when you get into medical school is that you, you like, you ultimately have to take care of yourself first. Um, so you can say, no, don't go, I can't go to this family. I can't come home for this. I've got to study. You can use that to the to the exclusion of anything else. And I think that needs to be the number one concern. But that being said, I'm not like an AOA kind of person. So I did not need to study for 15 hours a day because I knew it was gonna make a difference for me. Um, so, I mean, I think doing some form of activism was always maybe part of what I scheduled, you know, besides, unless I was studying for a major exam or, you know, like the boards. Um, and so I think that's the first thing I would say. Number two, I think, Right now, I've, I've noticed over the past few years that the landscape is changing, at least even in my residency class and even in the, the medical school class at Yale. It's, the students have been more involved in these kinds of issues than I've seen before. I give a lecture about you know racism and discrimination to the Yale medical school class every year. And I think the, maybe a couple years ago I gave it and these people were like, what are you talking, what are you saying? I'm gonna cross the street if I see a, a tall black person. I'm not gonna do that. Why would I do that? And now people raise their hand and they're saying, well, are we going to talk about, you know, um, how many black males are incarcerated in this, in this country versus other places? And this is like, you know, a, a, a first year, you know, white woman who's speaking from who knows where. And you're, you, I, so I think it's, it's remarkable that this is on, this is on people's minds. So two, I think that it's, the context is probably more open for that, I guess I'll say. So that's a positive. Three, I think what's also happening to, in order to get in the medical school, or even I would say succeed in a lot of these ac- in academia, I think creativity is really important. And so if you're going to be an activist, I, it's not just creativity, but I'll say practicality. It's maybe coming up with ways to make it useful and practical, not just for you, but for other people. Because I think what, what at least happens is that the activists tend to, uh, you know, we stick together. But then what happens to the other people who are not activists? So who are we doing the activism for? And so I think that using your um, your deter- your enthusiasm and determination to the benefit of the entire community, um, I think will one help garner support from other people who may not who wouldn't normally give you support. Um, and in that way, it's not like an us versus them. Um, four, I think also it's not an asylum. So it's not just 
the black women who are activists, or it's not just the queers who are activists. I think we tend to have these groups, right? And we call them affinity right. groups. But at this point, we can't be doing this um, in isolation so much. Maybe it's like where the brainstorming happens, but I think we need we need to have, be having allies or even people who wouldn't normally be allies to get involved in the conversation. Um, just because I think it isolates everyone. And I really sort of, maybe ethically, I'm, I'm personally ethically, ethically, maybe I'm a bit uneasy with this, like having to cater the message to this, this other population who maybe I don't even like in the first place. But um, at least what I've been saying in my lectures is that I'm not here to like hate on the Trump supporters. I'm here to honestly say, let's stop hating on them, even though we may not like them, but we need to talk through it and like see them as a person who maybe has this political view and try to just have a conversation. Um, and I've been, I think that that is a really big piece of this. I also think that right now we're also trying to do in the Department of Psychiatry is this new curriculum um, and on social justice. Uh, is that what do you, you have to be careful because there are some people who are gonna say, okay, I'm coming to residency, but I'm not here to learn social justice. So I think you have to have an institution actually show that there's, not show, but I'm not going to say mandate, but if this is important for your institution, you have to make it a part of it. So while we are creating this curriculum, you know, my department is saying this is important to us as a department of psychiatry. This is a big step. Yes, for you MD PhDs who are coming just to do research like 70% of the time. But I also think in designing the curriculum, what we're doing is, you know, for example, one of the tracks is advocacy, and we're really trying to teach. Um, all of the different forms of advocacy. So you don't have to go to the Capitol. You don't have to go pick it. You know, if you're a scientist or if you're a neuroscientist, what can you do in your, like in your interest, if it's your interest that can advocate for other people. And I mostly think that that's important because, you know, I'm not one of these people. Actually, I didn't volunteer a ton. My friends used to make fun of me a lot because I didn't, you know, they're like, what are you doing for other people? And I said, well, I'm volunteering like every day, just being like out and black. But well, I think what I realized is that, you know, I was actually doing a lot more behind the scenes in terms of research and, and reading and thinking about ideas and maybe, you know, designing education. And it took a while before I realized that that was a form of volunteering or advocacy. And I think that's really important. I don't think everyone understands that. So one, I think it's, you know, the activists, I think it's, it's mainly helping other people to, to see that it is social justice is important. I think that's maybe the main goal, but you can't do that unless you're taking care of yourself. Right, and it goes right back to the the idea of being self-aware and totally disclosing to yourself right. kind of where you're at, what your what questions you can ask yourself and then ultimately figure out what your thing is and advocate in that way. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, agreed. I put agreed. on my question sheet number 10 an enormously large question which is what is your mm -hmm. dream for the future of queer healthcare? um you know it's big it's lofty but you know you're talking about this um this social justice curriculum in terms of medical education and going off of what we talked about earlier about some medical schools not having any medical education that had that deals with you know queer issues where do you kind of hope to see that in the near future, in the distant future? You know, do you want to see, I'm sure you want to see changes. Yeah, yeah. I actually think my one suggestion right now, just because I think the queer piece is probably not maybe at the, at the center of my identity right now, is intersectionality. 
um, because I think what ends up happening, and I think this is sort of um, maybe what's happening to an extent with the LGBTQ stuff right now, is that it's just LGBTQIA. And it's really, it's it's so, we're not, it's just life is so complicated. People are so complicated. No one is just purely lesbian. Like you're not purely just a cisgendered um, gay white guy. Like it's not. I don't know where you, well, you grew up in Boston, right? Like, I don't know where your parents are from, I don't know what your ethnicity is, what your religion is, et cetera, et cetera. And so I honestly think what the future of LGBTQI healthcare is, is maybe it's merging with um, healthcare for, honestly, all others is what I would say, and, and being able to educate practitioners in a way that doesn't pigeonhole into one of these labels, but, but looks at maybe the nuance of having multiple identities. And so, you know, it's not just, oh, let's talk about gayness, which usually ends up being with, I think, like with white guys, or let's talk about lesbians, which is actually not really the population that I tend to identify with. I said, I didn't come out of the closet until I was much older, until I was like 25 or 26, versus what's happening now. I mean, I, I consider myself queer, but I'm like a different type of queer person than I think, you know, Friends I used to call, you know, like the baby dykes, right? Who are like 21 or 20 years old, who kind of in a completely different way are being genderqueer, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that my dream would be one, I I get it, establishing the basics of what, what does this actually mean? But two, doing it in a way that acknowledges that there is nuance to this. And that um, one, I think also the communities need to understand that there are, um, you know, some of, being members of not of some of these groups and other identity groups is really awful. I mean, it's just really like I think trans women of color is such a vulnerable population. But I don't know if I think maybe now it's getting into the conversation. But what health? It's not at mainstream LGBTQ education. It's not something that they're. I mean, they're not public fighting for these kinds of things, and so. That's honestly what I would like. And, and I think what I would like for any of this kind of education is to really acknowledge and not just teach one group is this, another group is this, but find a way to teach some of the big picture, but also educate on maybe, you know, how to ask questions or what's important so people can think through it, which isn't really how we learn, I think, in America. We, we learn by memorizing, you know, certain parts of it. But I really think that it's time to start learning by approaching things as a big picture, maybe, and then trying to sort of work through it. That's helpful. The big picture, obviously, is it's a lot to teach, but, you know, yeah. it would it would certainly help us from trying to, you know, solve every single person and just kind of exist within, hey, this is kind of where I'm at right now. Right. Um, Right. So I, I have I, I know you have other things to do. I have I have two final questions. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know they're much more sort of I guess personal in in a way. What would you you know what would you say to um, to hopeful doctors or pre meds or or current you know physicians who are in a position where they feel like they're the only one in their entire building, in their entire department, in their entire service yeah. that that fits into this particular role. Uh, you know, what's your advice to them? You know, how do, how do you kind of work through that day-to-day -day feeling of, am I gonna actually, am I gonna live this today or am I gonna give myself, you know, the much needed break that I need? 
Yeah. Um, I think one of those ways is, is, is knowing when you, you need to, the, the phrase I use is take a beat, um, which is, you know, if I woke up on the wrong side of the bed, it just hasn't been going well for me. I know that it's probably not a good day for me to, you know, try to raise house somewhere because I'm probably not going to do it very well. And I'm just going to get upset. Um, I'm going to flip out on someone else or flip out on myself. And so, you know, I just try to take it slow those days. Um, and, you know, there are moments like that. And I think maybe right now, at least for me, where I've been only spending, you know, alone social time with people that I know the best and know really well. And, you know, it's like no judgment zone. It's just, it's my, it's my safe zone. Um, and so I think we really need to know and recognize when when those moments are coming and feel okay that you can do that. Um, and then number two, I think, is, is honestly mentorship. And I, I know this is also one of your questions, but it's not just mentorship, maybe it's community in general, but I think it, community and mentorship comes in different forms. It's sort of like that parable, I think, where, and I'm gonna mess this up because I'm so bad with the Bible stories, but I think there was someone who was maybe waiting on help to come in some sort of way and it actually came in the form of, I don't know, like God or, or the Lord, like in a, in a homeless person on the street. And this person had completely overlooked that maybe this, 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 um, uh, this homeless person was a person who could offer them what they needed. And, um, I think it's really tricky because it's, a, it's a, it's sort of like, a. I don't know what you call those things, like a, like a seesaw. You go back and forth between feeling like you have to protect yourself and sort of isolate because you just don't feel like you can trust people. But then there are moments where someone really comes through who you're not expecting. And I've had a lot of mentors who don't look like me and some mentors who are like me who have been really important. Right now, I think my biggest ally is my, my old program director, Dr. Robert Warbaugh who's, I don't know, like a 63-year-old older white man from, he's Pennsylvania Dutch, um, and I think he's just, he's really been a champion for me. And this is the last person that I would ever consider myself being so close to. Uh, and so I think a number of my, my, my strongest community members, uh, are people that I, that I would maybe not have immediately sort of picked out as mentors. And so, I, I mean, so that means you have to give people a chance to sort of find that out about them, but you can't do that on a day when you're feeling so cranky. So you really have to recognize when you're not feeling up to it um, and when you are feeling more open and happy, like taking a risk and having an extra conversation with someone maybe that you wouldn't have had before because then maybe you can establish some sort of bond beyond, again, these labels of you are Republican, you are white, you are X, you are, you are Y, like those kinds of things. Do you find that you've become that mentor for, for other people just by being vocal in your own, uh, you know, in your own life? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I think similar to you, I also found that I've become maybe an enemy of some people. <laughs> or maybe, maybe a nuisance to some people. Reluctantly and not so reluctantly sometimes. Yeah, yeah but I mean, to, to tell you the truth, a lot of the people that I think I've become a nuisance to are also, I think, a nuisance to me. And I, I don't know that they are. Um, I think what's happened is that, and I don't think it's just me, but I think people are really sort of, um, uh, I forget you call it, maybe they're they're sort of staying close to their comfort zone and i'm not i haven't at least most recently been in the mood to sort of 
have these social happy hours or coffee dates with people who I wouldn't normally consider to be in my inner circle. And that's because I, I think I'm meeting a, a closer or more intense level of understanding and support right now. And so there are a lot of people who I think would normally not think I was a nuisance, who do think I'm a nuisance now, who I would have think were a nuisance, who I actually think are a nuisance right now, because we're just not on the same page about things. And that's fine. Maybe we were years ago. And so I am finding that with not just maybe friends, I think that's helped is that there are a lot of my friends who maybe are thinking about things differently. So that's been good. Um, I do think that there are colleagues who are even senior to me, who I think that that's been, you know, I found myself maybe being a mentor in that way of just saying what's going on. And I think that that's, that's made a world of difference. And then there are medical students um, and psychologists and other, or, or residents who were in um, a year below me, um, who I think I have, I think my form of doing it has changed. I'm a bit more direct now, whereas before it was more, you know, what are you, I don't know, maybe more like open-ended. These days it's just like, you need to watch out. Like you're going to have to be on your game or, um, you know, you really need to study or, you know, you really need to know this X and X and Y, or if you're going to have a conversation with someone, you know, do it this way. I think I've been more inclined to maybe be more blunt about things in my in my mentorship form, just because I'm also realizing how vague people talk about things. Like we talk indirectly, or we use nuance, or we like insinuate, and we're passive aggressive. And so I do think that that is something that I have been doing more, mostly with my my residents who were who were younger in training than me. Um, I, I mean, I think it's really useful. And I had it. One of my closest mentors was my former chief resident. And she's extremely blunt. And I think she would all probably say that she's a bit basic with me because I really don't understand nuance that well sometimes. Um, and I, you need it. Like, I think you absolutely needed to get through this, this, you know, this path we call medicine, I suppose. Sure. That's a bit of mom's intrusiveness again, probably yeah. helping you out in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah. No, seriously, because people think, you know, what they, they think, you know, what they're talking about. You think, you know, what they're talking about, but then you sit down to, I don't know, pull something out or think about X thing related to your future. And you have no idea. And that has been a result of being on the job market this year. That is that's definitely been one of my, one of the things I've had to learn to do is be more direct. Do you think that you just ask for what you want now because you, I, I guess, less of a question it's more of a statement someone i grew up with a friend of the family's always told me and this is like a very you know um business oriented guy he always said happy people ask for what they want um, it's it's so true you know my mother would always say to me if you if you don't ask you don't know right right <laughs> yeah yeah I, and I, yeah yeah i agree i worked in sales before uh, software sales specifically uh, before <laughs> this. And so I got very comfortable with the idea of just asking for what I wanted. Um, my last question is, it's a bit of a non sequitur from what we were talking about, but not so much. Um, you know, how have your patients responded to you? You, you have this quote, um, in your JAMA piece, wow, I've never been treated by a black doctor. That to me was the most, it's such a simple and powerful, um, you know, scene in my head. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I think that captures it all. It's one, it's, I think it's sad when I, sometimes when I think about that, that they've never seen a black doctor or someone who looks like them or someone who is like, like them. 
Um, but I think that has been one of one of the things that keeps me going, especially when I, I, I think about making this transition from um, direct clinical care to being more behind the scenes and designing education. Um, just that it makes a difference when, it's, I don't know, you know, there are how many studies about race concordance or you know or these kinds of things but they typically show that if you, you look I mean and I mean it's true in real life is that we tend to rate people better who look like us or who are like us who are similar in some way and I think it does something at least subconsciously if you don't ever see anyone who looks like you in any of these positions so one most people don't even think I'm the doctor they think I'm the nurse or they don't even know what I'm called but they're like oh no I need to see the prescriber and I say I am the prescriber and I think that, again, subconsciously, just by even being there, and that's why I think maybe some of the self-disclosures is helpful, because just by being present somewhere, that makes a world of difference, even if you're not doing anything. Just that they know, which is sort of like these photos on the wall. Just by, by virtue of there being no black, even if there's one, I don't know, Indian person up there, or Latino person up there, that makes a world of a difference, even if you don't know who, who that person is. Um, and so I think, you know, on a larger scale, it's it's immensely important to me because I didn't have a ton of people, maybe a few who look like me who were in these in these roles for me, um, and that was a motivator for me. And then three, I think it helps with giving back uh, to people who, at some point, you know, were able to say, "Well, you know, I had a black doctor once, and that made a difference." Or maybe, oh, maybe I can be a doctor. I think it sparks conversations. You know, my mom's always making me go back to church in Florida or write something to people or, or write an email to some, I don't know, 11th grader who thinks she wants to be a doctor back at church. And I think it's, you know, it's even though it's, it's sometimes a nuisance, it's really important to do because there are not a lot of people who get to these positions and it's, it's, it's extremely symbolic. But I think personally, it's, it's heartbreaking um, because I see, I think this year, one of my, one of my supervisors passed away and I had to take over his clinic and he was, he was the attending for, I mean, like 20 years or so. And these patients are, I mean, they had a direct sort of connection to me by virtue of me having worked there in the past year and being black and being black and he was black. And even when I wasn't there, the things they would say, oh, well, you know, he looked like us. So I've heard it from the patient. So it's not just me. I know that this is an important thing sometimes. Not everyone is the same, um, but I do think that it makes a difference. And number... I guess one of the other things is that I don't necessarily have a shared experience to a lot of the people. Like I said, I've passed in many ways. I think I've, I have a lot more economic privilege than a lot of my patients, but by virtue of hearing what they've gone through and then having a seat at a table, I think I'm able to represent their interests a lot more um, because maybe they've in some way by telling me, telling me that. Um, and then I also think at least in my psychotherapy patient who I think came in and maybe assumed that we had a similar relationship or similar views on things. I was able to maybe not challenge her, but say, not say even, but essentially represent maybe different thinking and challenge her assumptions that she would be making. So I think there's so many levels to it, but it's just, I think it's time for the workforce to represent what our patients look like, like above all, no matter like if this is just my opinion, I just think that that makes sense to me. Yeah. From a, a seesaw scale it makes sense um, yeah not just that but even like if you read the harvard business review when they talk about diversity in terms of how profitable it is like imagine how better our um our workforce would be if we actually represented the people that we were 
that we were taking care of because we would have that diversity of thought. We would probably operate so much more creatively and efficiently. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's an attainable dream. I think as soon as we get more, you know, more thinkers like you in, in designing education too, that, that will be, you know, helpful in, in getting there. And I, I think too, a lot about the idea of, you know, acceptance versus tolerance and, um, you know, hiring practices that just fill quotas versus really seeking that out. And also, you know, when it comes down to it, is there, is there a huge difference? Is there a, you know, is the value add still there regardless? You know, I, I think it's going to take some, you know, some just, just rolling the dice and going for it and saying, we are going to hire these people. We are going to do these things that are just going to make us look different, literally externally, and then recognize that because of that, we have so much, like you said, a diversity in thought and a creativity in the way that we solve problems for a a group of people that are not just one type of person who come to, you know, that clinic for 20 years to see this one doctor. They know he's going to understand them, you know, better than someone who, who maybe grew up in a suburb with tons of money or, or just not even something like that, you know, something totally different. Um, you know, I, I think a lot too about, you know, the journals that, that get, uh, written and the, the websites that get run and, um, kind of pushing more, more diversity in those places as well. And just showing that, you know, there is creative thought happening all over and and we need to start, you know, handing the microphone over to more people. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it comes in different forms. So sometimes those you know, rich white kids from the suburbs <laughs> have a lot of, uh, I think that's the thing that's so tricky is that you, and and I, I do strongly believe in affirmative action. It's not necessarily what I'm saying, but I do think that diversity comes in different forms, but attention to, you know, maybe the, the, the forms that are harder to find, but it's hard to do all of that and make sure that people feel valued for whoever they are, because they do have a diversity experience as well. Um, so I really hope that medical education or medicine in general really learns to just be better about that without excluding people, I suppose. Yeah. Just widen the circle. Widen yeah. the circle for more people. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Exactly. Exactly.